So I grew up in Spokane. I think most of you know that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we aren't many, but we are strong. Uh, most, of my, most of my friends, most of my neighbors were Cougar fans over on, in the 509. Um, but I, for some reason, was drawn to the Huskies. I had Husky hats when I was in junior high and high school, and I, I have no real good reason as to why that's the case. But now I've been in Seattle uh, for almost 18 years, uh, and it was only last night during a pretty lopsided Apple Cup that I, I finally looked up the lyrics to Bow Down to Washington, uh, which is the school fight song for the UW. And it was written over 100 years ago when the greatest rivalry that the UW had was with the University of California Golden Bears. And so some of the original lyrics were, uh, bring the golden bear from his mighty lair, for we're going to hang his carcass in the Northland. <laughs> yeah. Yep. So today we're talking about idolatry. So we're going to sing, <laughs> bow down to Washington. No, I mean, because we would never make an idol of sports, right? We would never do. We would never do something like that. I remember in I went to college in the Midwest and uh, experienced for the first time there the passion of Midwest college football. Uh, and there was a guy I lived with who was from Ohio State and loved the Ohio State University. And this was during a stretch when they were not very good. And whenever they lost, which again during the stretch was often, he was inconsolable for 24 hours. Uh, like you just didn't want to be around him. And. Uh, and one of the definitions of idolatry that we'll be exploring this morning is that uh, it's whatever we look to uh, and whatever we say in our heart of hearts that if we lost that, our life would have no meaning uh, or purpose. That if we, if we lost that thing, that we ourselves would be lost. So it, it is a, an interesting uh, name of a fight song, Bow Down to Washington. <laughs> uh, another, another way of thinking about idolatry uh, and I'm borrowing a lot of these thoughts from Tim Keller, if any of you have read Counterfeit Gods, a really helpful book, um, is, is to say that it's something, an idol is something that if we have it, then our lives will be complete. We will finally have meaning, purpose, significance, security. Whatever it is that we look to for that kind of security and purpose may be an idol in our lives. Uh, idolatry is a major theme in the Bible from the Old to the New Testament. Uh, but part of the problem for us is that we often hear the word and think of like carved images or golden calves, which is not particularly, I don't think, the idolatry that you and I struggle with. Um, and so our question and answer today from the New City Catechism that we're walking through is actually helpful, I think, in kind of redefining a little bit about what idolatry is and how we are so susceptible to it. So I'll ask it, and if we can answer together, what is idolatry? Idolatry is trusting in created things rather than the creator for our hope and happiness, significance and security. Fortunately, we never do that, so we're all right. Not true. We are going to look uh, at the latter half of Romans chapter 1 this morning, and I'm, I'm going to read it in the message, which I don't normally do, but the message I feel like captures... Um, this kind of downward spiral that happens uh, as we worship and serve things that are not God, as we worship and serve idols in our lives. And so I'm going to start in verse 18. It'll be on the screen. If you want to look on your phones and follow along, that's great. This is from Romans chapter 1. This is God's word for us this morning. 
But God's angry displeasure erupts as acts of human mistrust and wrongdoing and lying accumulate. As people try to put a shroud over truth. But the basic reality of God is plain enough. Open your eyes, and there it is. By taking a long and thoughtful look at what God has created, people have always been able to see what their eyes as such cannot see. Eternal power, for instance, and the mystery of his divine being. So nobody has a good excuse. What happened was this. People knew God perfectly well, but when they didn't treat him like God, refusing to worship him, they trivialized themselves into silliness and confusion so that there was neither sense nor direction left in their lives. They pretended to know it all, but were illiterate regarding life. They traded the glory of God who holds the whole world in his hands for cheap figurines that you can buy at any roadside stand. So God said, in effect, if that's what you want, that's what you get. It wasn't long before they were living in a pig pen, smeared with filth, filthy inside and out. And all this because they traded the true God for a fake God and worshiped the God they made instead of the God who made them. The God we bless and the God who blesses us. Oh, yes. But worse followed. Refusing to know God, they soon didn't know how to be human either. Women didn't know how to be women. Men didn't know how to be men. Sexually confused, they abused and defiled one another. Women with women, men with men. All lust and no love. And then they paid for it. Oh, how they paid for it. Emptied of God and love. Godless and loveless wretches. But since they didn't bother to acknowledge God, God quit bothering them, let them run loose. And then all hell broke loose, rampant evil, grabbing and grasping, vicious backstabbing. They made life hell on earth with their envy, wanton killing, bickering and cheating. Look at them, mean-spirited, venomous, fork-tongued God-bashers, bullies, swaggers, insufferable windbags. They keep inventing new ways of wrecking lives. They ditch their parents when they get in the way. Stupid, slimy, cruel, cold-blooded, and if that, uh, and it's not as if they don't know better. They know perfectly well they're spitting in God's face, and they don't care. Worse, they hand out prizes for those who do the worst things the best. Those people are on a dark spiral downward. But if you think that leaves you on the high ground, where you can point your fingers at others, think again. Every time you criticize someone, you condemn yourself. It takes one to know one. Judgmental criticism of others is a well-known way of escaping detection in our own crimes and misdemeanors. But God isn't so easily diverted. He sees right through all such smoke screens and holds you to what you've done. Lord, this is a heavy word to hear and to read. Help us to hear your voice this morning in it. The weightiness and the seriousness of idolatry, but also your grace and your mercy. Your longing for your people to, to worship you, to put you at the center of all things. For that is your rightful place. Help us, Lord. Amen. Uh, probably comes as no surprise that God hates idolatry. Uh, the first few commandments of the Ten Commandments are very oriented around this truth, um, and it's 
clear throughout the history of God's relationship with his people Israel and the church that, that idolatry is something that he cannot stand. Um, his holiness and his justice means that he hates idolatry. His holiness means that he cannot be in the, uh, in the presence of sin in any way, shape, or form. And his justice means that he can't simply let sin slide, that sin has to be dealt with. But if, if God is worshipped as God at the center of all things, then all of these other, other areas in our lives, other things that can become idols, uh, have their proper place. We have a proper relationship with them if God remains at the center. This passage, uh, it just describes this kind of constant downward spiral of humanity uh, when humanity ignores God as God um, and worships created things rather than the one who made everything. Ultimately, what happens is we place ourselves and our appetites at the center, and that's what we worship. Whatever we crave, that's the thing that we worship. And what happens is that it kind of becomes its own reward. We, we, we get what we're after, ultimately. God leaves us to that. He doesn't force himself and says, if this is what you want, then this is what you'll get. But that's what ultimately then continues to lead on that downward spiral towards death and destruction. Right? If we, if we worship money, we may very well actually at one point get money, but it will come at the cost of everything else of our soul, of our relationship to God, our relationship with other people. Uh, when Jesus is, is giving the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about uh, giving and prayer and fasting. And in each of these things, these are, these are good things, giving, prayer, and fasting, all really good things. But he warns people, don't be like the hypocrites, because they do these good things to serve another idol. And the idol they're serving is their reputation. They're, they're serving... They, they want other people to think highly of them, to, to see them as holy and as righteous and as good. And what Jesus says is, they get their reward. That is their reward. People will see them and think, wow, what good people they are. And that's it. And what a, what a terrible uh, reward that, that that ultimately is. They have received their reward in full, is what he says. As Paul continues to uh, describe this, this downward spiral, he, in, the, in the NIV, he uses a phrase uh, three different times where God gave them over. Right? In, their, in their pursuit of things that were not God, God gave them over to the pursuit of those things. He gave them over to sinful desires. God gave them over to shameful lusts. God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. This giving over is kind of the, the natural result of what happens when we worship things uh, that are not God and put at the center of our lives things that ought not be there. So the, the question that this whole, but there's a lot in this passage that we just don't have time to get into, but the, the question that it begs for us as we think about idolatry um, is what is at the center of our lives? What is really, truly, functionally, at the center of our lives? What do our lives revolve around? What is the thing that we pursue at the, co at, at the cost of everything? Or what is the thing that we have that if we lost it, our lives would be over? We would be spent, we'd be done. And the only answer to that question that, that doesn't lead to death, loss, and tragedy is, is God. When God is pursued at the cost of everything else, it turns out that 
All these other things are given to us along the way anyways, right? Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God, his righteousness, and all these other things will be added unto you. And then once we have God, or once, once, more accurately, once God has us, once God is at the center of our lives, then we have the confidence that this is not something that we can lose. Right? Paul says, I'm convinced that neither death nor life, angels nor demons, present nor the future, nor powers, height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is good news. I mentioned Tim Keller earlier, and I think for me, and, and I, I know for some of us here, he's been very helpful with this book that he wrote called Counterfeit Gods in helping us to redefine this biblical notion of idolatry and, and how actually even in our modern culture where we're not really you know, carving idols out of wood or stone, that we still succumb to this very easily. We're very inclined towards pursuing and, and, and worshiping and orienting our love and our lives after all kinds of things that aren't God. Uh, and he, so he has, uh, he has this definition here that I'll, just, I'll read of, of what an idol is. I've already alluded to this a little bit. What is an idol? Uh, an idol is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything that you seek to give, anything that you seek to give you what only God can give. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then my life has meaning, value, significance, and security. So Tim Keller wrote this book in 2009, Counterfeit Gods, and the subtitle is The Empty Promises of Money, Sex, and Power, and The Only Hope That Matters. And that triggered something in my mind, because I have another book by Richard Foster that he wrote in 1985 called Money, Sex, and Power, The Challenge of the Disciplined Life. And as I was searching for that online, I discovered that John Piper last year wrote a book called Living in the Light, Money, Sex, and Power, Making the Most of Three Dangerous Opportunities. And you would have thought that an editor would say, like, why don't you switch up the order? Like, why don't you just start with sex or start with power? It'll stand out more. But I, it, no, it's money, sex, and power, all three of them over a couple of decades here. And... Um, what strikes me is that here are, are, are three pretty significant authors in the kind of the modern Western evangelical church who have all identified um, these three areas of life as great gifts from God that have a deep, deep, dark potential downside when we pursue them and when we worship them. And it doesn't take uh, a long time to look at the news before we see this playing out, right? I mean, daily... Daily, we are seeing uh, stories of powerful men, either celebrities or politicians, who are using their positions of power to exploit women for their own sexual pleasure. Um, and, and part of the, the bind that the women find themselves in is that the power that these men have is for their own economic future, right? They, they have, the power they have is over their own... Um, uh, the, the future of their, their career in this industry. And so these three things become so twisted together and, and so warped. I don't know that you need to be convinced <laughs> of the damage that these things can do when they are worshipped as idols, when they are pursued at the cost of everything. The church, 
we are not so guilt-free in this realm either. So my prayer, my prayer is that the church can be a place where these three things can be received as God intended as gifts, right? These are not evil things inherently, money, sex, and power. This is the whole challenge of (laughs) sussing out what are idols in our lives is that they inevitably are good things that God has given to us that we place as ultimate things and we start to serve them as ultimate things. And that's when everything gets twisted and warped. And as we hear daily reports of these celebrities and politicians and whoever else uh, being accused of, of these awful, awful things, we have to hear Paul's warning. And I hope you heard it as I read from Romans 1 this morning. That whenever we point a finger, we've got three pointing back at ourselves. That though we may not have the same amount of power or money or whatever as these people in the news do, but nonetheless... These three three things, and others, certainly others. These are not the only idols (laughs) available to us. Uh, But certainly these three can still become for us um, idols in our own lives, no matter how much of them we have, right? Uh, Whether you are rich or, or poor, you are capable of pursuing and orienting your life around money in such a way that money becomes an idol. It's not the having of it that makes it an idol. It's the pursuit of it. It's the how much it captures your imagination and your love. Jesus doesn't say money is the root of all evil. He says the love of money is the root of all evil. Just because you're married does not mean that you are free from making sex an idol in your life. Right? Married people are just as capable of objectifying their spouses and others as are single people. And single people have the capacity to live a God-honoring sexual life with truly intimate relationships, even while living sexually chaste lives. So the having of whatever it is does not necessarily mean that you, uh, it will be an idol in your life, the having or the not having. It's the pursuit. It's the love. So whether we're rich or poor, single or married, whether we have power or we feel like we have no power in this life, Uh, We all have the capacity to serve these as idols or the capacity to serve and worship God as the one true God and then to receive these things as gifts. So how do we how do we respond to all of this? Well, so here we are. We're celebrating Christ the King Sunday. Christ the King, Christ as Lord. Christ is on the throne, and every other God is what Tim Keller calls a counterfeit God, a fraud. So the first step is remembering this, just remembering that this is true. This is what is actually true, is that Christ is on the throne, that Jesus is Lord. He's not just my Lord, but he is Lord, full stop. And inevitably, once we remember that, the next step is going to be confession, (laughs) because we remember that we have not lived as if that's true. Uh, And that is one of the uh, most difficult and beautiful practices that the church has been about for thousands of years, is that we confess freely our sin and we trust and receive God's forgiveness. We trust that he forgives us for that. So remembering that Christ is the king and confessing that we have not always lived that way, that's the first step. But as I was reading through uh, Richard Foster's book on money, sex, and power, um, he had an interesting next step that I thought we could explore a little bit this morning. 
to begin with, Ed, if you want to throw that picture up uh, after all of that. Um, last week, nine people stood up here and did something that was very countercultural. Right? They took vows and they became members of the church. They made a commitment, a promise to Christ and to his church and to this local expression of Christ's church. And we, the church community, we made a, a vow back to them, a promise, a commitment. We take vows uh, in our, at our weddings, but outside of that, there's not a whole lot of opportunities, I think, that we have to, to make vows. Um, maybe this is a result of the Protestant Reformation and, you know, the vows, that was part of the Catholic tradition we left behind. Maybe it's because we emphasize God's grace so much and we know, we know ourselves to be so fickle um, and so incapable of actually keeping a promise and keeping a vow that we're very hesitant to make them. But I wonder, I wonder if we've missed out on something. Richard Foster, in his book titled, again, Money, Sex, and Power, because that's the only title that was available to all these guys, uh, he, what he does is he looks at how vows that different groups of Christians at different times, vows that they've taken that directly address these three potential idols in their lives. So he looks at, um, at the Benedictine monks. And the three primary vows that a Benedictine monk takes when they enter into that life is chastity, sorry, poverty, chastity, and obedience. And how directly those three are related to money, sex, and power. Right? You, take, you enter in to become a Benedictine monk and you take a vow of poverty as a way of addressing the idol of money. You take a vow of chastity as a way of addressing the idol of sex. And you take a vow of obedience, placing control of your life in the hands of someone else in your order that you live with as a way of addressing the idol of power. The Puritans kind of had their own take on this. It was industry, faithfulness, and order as the ways that they pushed back against the idols of money, sex, and power. And Foster, as he, as he talks through, uh, through the ways that these Christian communities have, have done this in centuries past, the conclusion he comes to is that we, we need, we're not Benedictine monks. Uh, we're no longer living in New England as the Puritans. What we need are new vows, new vows that we can take as the church that help dethrone money, sex, and power, and all kinds of other things that might be idols in our lives, in order to create room at the center for Christ to truly be Lord of our lives. And so the vows that he proposes, which I think are quite beautiful, are these. A vow of simplicity, a vow of fidelity, and a vow of service. A vow of simplicity as a way to push back against greed and consumerism. We're, we're about to enter into Advent, which is also known as the busiest shopping season of the year, right? <laughs> so a vow of simplicity that pushes back on the temptation to accumulate, to view our resources only as our own. A vow of fidelity that would see our sexuality as a gift from God but something ultimately that we offer to him in service to him. A vow of service to see our power. Maybe, maybe uh, the temptation is to believe that we actually have no power. Maybe that's the, the temptation for some of us. So it's a, a reclaiming the gift of power, but then employing it 
for the service of others. Taking the example of Jesus, who in the very nature was God, right? But who showed his disciples how he was going to lead by taking a basin and a towel and then washing their feet. Taking the power and authority that he had and, and serving others with it. A vow of simplicity, a vow of fidelity, and a vow of service. And I think when we can take these vows, uh, that is a step in removing these three, money, sex, and power, from the central place in our lives and allows us instead to receive them as good gifts from God. These are good things. These are not things to be avoided. But they are to be received in the right context. We have some very good reason to be hesitant to take vows because we know ourselves, right? I'll speak for me. I know me. (laughs) And I know my inclinations and I know my tendency to make promises and to break them. And so, probably rightly so, we have a little bit of hesitancy to, to make vows. But part of what we have to understand is the context in which a vow is made. Um, and the context for us is always God's mercy. Right? Paul, in Romans 12, uh, encourages us to, to make a promise, to make a commitment to God, to offer to God our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to him. But the context for making that vow, that promise, that commitment, the context is in view of God's mercy. It's only in view of God's mercy that we could ever make any sort of commitment and vow to God. It's only in understanding God's vow and commitment and promise that he's made to us. His never-ending, never-failing love. His commitment to us. It's only when we, when we grasp that commitment that God has made that we can actually make a vow to God. So at the end of the service, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to invite you, uh, after we've had communion and, and sung, I'm going to invite you to, to make some vows this morning, to make a vow of simplicity and a vow of fidelity and a vow of service. Um, and I'm not going to be taking attendance and checking to make sure you vowed to all three. I want you to take it seriously that if, if you need to hold back, that I, I'm not going to force anyone, but I'll invite you to simply respond, I do, uh, not unlike a wedding vow, uh, at the end of the service. But as you do that, as you consider making these vows to God, know that the context that you are making this vow is the context of mercy. The context of God's vow to you, that he loves you, he has pursued you, and he is constantly pursuing you longing for you to be in right relationship with him where he is at the center of your life and where everything else, money, sex, power, family, work, whatever, everything else you can receive is a gift from him. That's what we remember every week when we come to the table. This is a reminder to us, an experience to us of the vow and the commitment that God has made to us, his love for us.